0: Good morning, good morning. Welcome to faith, this beautiful Sunday morning. We are finishing up our, our sermon series on the gospel according to Job. Next week we'll start a series, our annual July prayer series. We'll look at the, uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew. The book of Job has reminded us that there's so much suffering in the world, a lot of pain and suffering in our world. And we see it in our lives, our own lives. We see it, it, it even more so in the lives of the people who are much more vulnerable than most of us are. This week we've seen the painful separation of children. That's been a major issue in the last few weeks of children at the southern border. Families risking their lives heading north to come to America. And seeing the painful look on on children's faces has has gripped uh, the world. It's been a universal outcry. Gladly the president uh, a couple days ago heard the cries and things are being done uh, to not immediately divide families. But but the pain didn't start at the border. The pain, it, it started in places where there seems to be no hope. So desperate people continue to escape to this nation, seeking safety and a better life and a removal of pain. But we also must remember that there's much pain in our nation as well, isn't there? The recent Pew research data interested me. It said that the use of recreational marijuana in America is startling. Uh, In in 2000, 31% of Americans wanted legalization. In 2017, it was up to 57%. This year, in 2018, it's up to 61%. Recreational marijuana. The great escape is on. More and more people are seeking to escape their emotional pain by by getting high and staying high. The ancient... Patriarch Job experienced much pain and suffering himself. And, and that's the basis of this dramatic story that we've been looking at over the last couple months, this book of Job. Today we're going to look at chapter 42. And in this last chapter, we're going to see his saga comes to a glorious end. Let's look at, at uh, the text. It's on the screen here. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 of the text. And we'll focus most of our attention on that, this portion of it. Job chapter 42. Verses 1 to 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you when you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I seize you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, we, we tend to think that the closer we get to God, the more we understand Him. And, and then the more obedient we will feel in our lives. But that's not true. The closer we get to God, the more we behold His holiness. We realize how far sh- we fall short each day. The text, indeed, the entire book shows us that those who would walk seriously with God bow in repentance regularly. (laughs) Those who would be serious in their walks with God are those who walk in repentance on a regular basis. The two key verses are what we're going to spend most of our time looking at, verses 5 and 6. We see in this text several movements. That, Job take, that God takes Job through that we're going to look at as we, look, we wrap up this entire book. I believe he wants us to take us through four movements. The movement first is hearing about God and then struggling with God and then seeing God and then repenting before a Holy God. We see that in those, four verse, those two verses and we see that in one sense that's the movement of this entire book. Hearing about God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. We've seen in this book two tests in the first two chapters. Job was tested. Satan attacked Job's family, hit Job's present and future resources, and then Job's physical health was attacked. The fellowship that Job had with his wife, and more importantly, the sense of fellowship that he had with God, they became issues. Job was selected because of his faithfulness, because of his integrity, his blamelessness, his godly upright character. And we've suggested that he comes before us in the beginning with the same worldview as his friends. You do good and good things follow, you mess up and God will get you. Apart from God's grace, I believe that's where we all are. That's what we all believe and feel. We're all in that overly simplistic place. That's where we live. By the way, the chart that you've seen up there, we can get a copy of that outside, so don't try to write all that stuff down, the chart of the book. We had it a few weeks ago. We've seen from chapters 3 to 31 so the back and forth <laughs> that he had with his miserable comforters, which is what he calls them, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. And we saw in, in, in chapters 32 to 37 the young, feisty Elihu <laughs> sharing the wonderful Orthodox seminary notes that he had just gotten. Much of what Elihu said was on point, but his six chapters of wisdom, his counsel, his six long chapters to Job, they lack the wisdom that can only come from the crucible of real life experience. And the great irony is he accuses Job of being self-righteous while he himself is giving the most self-righteous arrogant speeches of the entire book. And then as, as Reuben showed us last week, found, God, God finally breaks through the silence. He shows up in the storm in chapter 38, this whirlwind. It was an overwhelming, powerful, unstoppable storm, a tornado, a hurricane. In the first kings, God spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice, but not here to Job. God has to shout at Job. And Reuben rightly depicted chapters 40 to 41 as a, as a boxing match excuse me, chapters 38 and 39 as a, as a boxing match last week God knocked Job down and, and, uh, but, 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 but he's not finished with him in chapter 41 Job gets off the canvas and it takes more jabs from God hearing about God is not the same as really knowing God personally I remember getting saved in a church, Baptist church in sixth grade, and I, I came to faith in Jesus Christ as my savior because I knew I was a sinner. But it wasn't until really high school that I began to hear people talk about, it was in young life in high school. They talked about the Christianity as being, having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that, 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 they focused not on the churchiness of things, but the relationalness of things. And I came to really appreciate that. Now, I know that following Jesus Christ is not just a personal thing, but it is a personal thing. It's a relational thing, a personal relationship. That's the foundation. Some of you may be here today, and you've heard things about God. You've you heard, and that's good, but that's not enough. Do you know him? Is it personal to you? Are you seeking to walk with him? Have you cast yourself upon him as your Lord and as your Savior, as your only hope? You know, if you haven't, then Job 42 has something for you, something you need to know, to do. Believe and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the one who delivers you from sin and from yourself. You know, the old Heidelberg Catechism, the first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death. This is the way that the whole catechism begins, and I, 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 I quote it here because of the personal pronouns that are in this answer. Answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He is fully paid for all my sins, and has in His precious blood has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. It's not just you personally, but it is you personally hearing about God. The next thing, it, 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 the next movement is the struggle. Verse verse five continues. He says, "I had heard, but now what's changed? I had heard of you, but now there has been some struggle, and that struggle is is the bulk of this book. <laughs> it's the bulk of this book that we've seen. Look, let's look at let's take a, zoom out a little bit to to this chapter forty two verses one to four. Let's look at the at the first the context of verses five and six. Notice that the the Job answers the Lord after this, the second speech of God. I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says, I, I know that now. Now, next, Job quotes what he does. He quotes what God had said earlier in thirty-eight, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God. That's what God had started his first speech with. And then we have Job's comment. Therefore, I heard what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me that I did not know. And then verse 4, he again is quoting God. What God said in thirty-eight three and in 47. In 40 verse 7, it's the beginning of the second speech uh, of God in the whirlwind. And here, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. So he's quoting God when he says that. So that whole paragraph is not doesn't make sense unless you understand he's quoting God, and he's responding to what God has said. Now, verses 5 to 6, our text, we have Joe's remorseful response to the last statement that he had just made, quoting God. And his response is very similar to the phrase from Amazing Grace, that I once was blind, but now I see. Except he says, I once had heard about you, but now I see. (laughs) Very similar. There's There's a but now. What gets Job to the point of this repentance? What gets him to that point? Let's zoom out a little further, okay? Zoom out further. Let's take a look at chapters 30 to 41. Some of this review from last week and others, the whole context here. There's two speeches of God, chapter 31, 38 to 41. The whirlwind comes and God speaks through the storm. Rather than give answers to Job, Job's been wanting God to answer him. God enlarges Job's understanding of who God is. His strategy is to take Job on several virtual trips. That's what he does. The first virtual trip is to the science center. God says, look at the universe. Look at the stars. Look at the sun. Look at the clouds. They're in the heavens that you can't control. I made them. I knew their measurements. I know how many there are, and I control them. The second trip is to the zoo. Look at the animals, Job, the animals that you can't master, the lions, the ravens, the mountain goats, the wild donkeys, the wild ox, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, the eagle. I made them. I control them. And they do my bidding. That's the end of the first speech. And it's at that point, as Reuben rightly pointed out, that Job has been knocked down by the heavyweight champion of the universe. So so God asked Job if he thought he could fulfill this job description of being God, being the Almighty. And Job just says, I'm going to shut up. He just says, i got nothing to say. Job is knocked down, but he's not knocked out yet. So we have a second speech of God in in chapters 40 and 41. The virtual trip continues, for two more chapters. God takes him to Jurassic Park. In chapter 40, verse 15, Behemoth, the hippopotamus-like land monster. And then in chapter 41, verse 1, we're introduced to Leviathan, the crocodile-like sea monster. I love verse 41.8, Job 41, eight, where God asks Job to lay your hands on him, Leviathan. Uh, remember the battle. You will not do it again. Reminds me of some of the scenes I saw the other day when I saw the Jurassic World movie. I think it's Jurassic World, whatever the name of it is. Jurassic Park. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you're not, there's, only, there's no rematch in these kind of battles. And God says to Job, if you can't handle him, Leviathan, what makes you think you could handle me? That's, the that's what God is seeing to Job. I call this section the monster motif section. There's a monster motif that's here. God does not want us to see him as the monster because he is not a monster God. In fact, that is too limiting. God wants to see him as the maker of the monsters. He's the master over the monsters. He's the sovereign creator of all things, even the monsters of land and sea. And he's the Lord of the monsters in our lives as well. The obstacles in your life, they seem like monsters sometimes, don't they? They eat you up. They destroy you. You can't handle them. The good news is that God's got all the masters in your life under control if you've trusted in him. Battling monsters, battling animals. Have you been hearing of the recent bear sightings in, in our state, in the news? Cecil County, Elkin City, Jessup, Randallstown. sounds a little close to home for me. Eh? Randallstown. Uh, bear biologist Harry Spiker says, this is the time of year that juvenile bears are being kicked out and forced to find a territory of their own. I saw an amazing story the other day uh, on June 7th. D.D. Phillips, uh, a 46-year-old grandmother from North Georgia, she came face to face with a rabbit bobcat, setting off a bare-knuckle death struggle between her and the animal. And she won, killing the cat with her bare hands. D.D. Phillips. she just bought a, a, a new truck and was fixing a bumper sticker to the back window of the, of the new ride. It said, women who behave rarely make history. That was the bumper sticker. So after going inside to get her iPhone to snap a photo of the sticker for her husband, she, she returned to her gravel driveway and she noticed a neighbor's dog was barking. And then she sat, saw the cat prowling near her car. Next slide there. She managed to snap a photo of the animal before it turned on her. She says, as soon as it took the first step, I was in trouble, and I knew it. The cat jumped, its claws raging for my face. It caught me slightly on my face, but I got him before he could do much more damage. I took it straight to the ground and started inching my hands up to its throat. I knew that was the only way I was going to get out of this. It's grandma battling a bobcat. What are the odds on Grandma winning this one, y'all? As she fought for her life with an animal revved up and sharp as a buzzsaw, she uttered no cries or shouts for help. The struggle was silent. Her five-year-old granddaughter was sleeping inside the house, and Phillips worried that shouts and screams might bring the child outside and give the bobcat a new target. She said, not today. There was no way I was going to die. She's my hero. Go, girl. D.D. D. Phillips. D.D. <laughs> D. Phillips in Georgia. Struggle. But God says, don't do that. Don't fight the animals. If you can't fight animals, gonna beat. You don't fight God. Don't struggle with God like that, because you will ultimately lose that kind of a struggle. God's saying, Job, this is how the real universe works. No one can successfully battle the things that I created. No one can successfully battle me. And there are things in this universe that you will never, that I can't even try to explain to you because you could never understand them anyway. Job is saying, you do not have to fully, God is saying, you don't have to fully understand me to trust me. You don't have to fully understand to love me and follow me and obey me. And the New Testament calls that simple faith, childlike faith, come as a child, is what we're called to do in the New Testament. So so this Job 42 experience, life-altering, life-transforming discipleship experience, It, it it is surrendering to the master because of a fresh vision that as your Lord and master, he loves you and will take care of you. It's about seeing God more accurately, more clearly, which takes us to our third movement, seeing God. Verse 5 continues. He says, but now my eyes see you. The beatific vision, some have used that phrase. This is not a literal seeing. It's not a literal, literal seeing, though. You might remember Moses in Exodus. He wanted to see God. was only allowed to see God's backside. Remember that? So, Job is saying that, that after this incredible conversation with God through the storm, he has a more real vision of who God really is and his glory and his might and his power and his control over all things and over his life. So, he submits to that, that control. God showed Job his glory. He's like others in Scripture who tasted of God's glory and were left speechless. And repented. Isaiah said, Woe is me. He saw the glory of God seated on a throne, Isaiah chapter 6, and said, Woe is me. The passage we heard earlier, Luke chapter 5, Simon Peter saw the miraculous catch of fish. He didn't say, Wow, that looks like a good meal. He said, Woe is me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He saw who Jesus was, the Lord of glory. You know, it's been said that God made us in his image. And then afterwards, we try to return the favor by remaking God in our image. We suppress the truth. We create idols or we modify the truth, the the truth about the true living God, so that we are actually following a distortion of who God really is. So, So the Christian life is about seeing God more accurately, seeing God more clearly, having a greater, more accurate vision of who God is. That's what we do when we worship. That's why we worship. That's, that's part of the reason why we gather together. We want to realize his attributes and his perfections, and we speak them, and we sing them, and we pray them, and hopefully they'll, they'll seek deep down in our hearts that we can embrace them and live them. You know, in the early 70s, um, th- there was a song that, was, that became very popular. It was actually be- came from a 13th century um, uh, 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 I think it was a monk in the 13th century. The song um, was popularized in the movie, the play Godspell. It was a movie or play called Godspell. Um, it became very popular in the 70s. I remember playing it in, 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 in college masses and stuff. Day by day, day by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things I pray. To see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, to follow you more nearly day by day. That's the song. That's the whole song over and over again. And it's a prayer. It's a wonderful song, a wonderful prayer. The heart of a disciple is to see God more clearly, to love him more dearly, and therefore follow him more nearly day by day. Take up your cross daily and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In the early 70s, I was a college student. I remember uh, I had a probably one of the most significant Job 42 experiences of my life in 1973 in College Park at InterVarsity Conference in November. There simply, I was already a believer, but the gospel became more real to me that week in a lot of different ways. By the way, that that was the first time I I met Yvonne Harris, who worships with us. She's not here today. I met her. She She was InterVarsity black leader at Morgan State, and I met her that weekend. But that making was profound in my life because I was a Christian. I was following Jesus. and I was, but, but I learned that God was much bigger and much greater than I thought he was and that I could trust him and I could follow him and I made commitments to the Lord uh, to be a son of God and to follow him all my life. Seeing God more clearly, a Job 42 experience. The, f- the fourth movement... Is repenting before God. Job repents. Verse 6 says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Dust and ashes. This this commentary. Sackcloth and ashes were used in Old Testament times as a symbol of debasement. Mourning, repentance. Someone wanting to show his repentant heart would often wear sackcloth, sit in ashes, and put ashes on top of his head. Sackcloth was a coarse material usually made of black goat's hair making it quite uncomfortable to wear. The ashes signified desolation and ruin. Very simply, sackcloth and ashes were used as an outward sign of one's inward condition. Such a symbol made one's change of heart visible and demonstrated the sincerity of one's grief and repentance, and or repentance. It was not the act of putting on sackcloth and, of cloth and ashes itself that moved God to intervene, but the humility that such an action demonstrated. God's forgiveness in response to genuine repentance is celebrated by by David's words, You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Psalm 30, verse 1. Sackcloth and ashes. Repentance by Job. The prophet Micah said, What does the Lord require? To do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly. To walk humbly before our God. That's repentance. James chapter 4, the Lord's brother said that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, the humble, those who walk in humility. Great illustration, my favorite illustration, I've used it before, is from the the Indiana Jones trilogy. I think it's the third one called The Last Crusade. And there's a scene where Indiana Jones is going through a cave. And in that cave, there are three challenges that he faces. And, and, and he, he wants to get through this because he has his father is wounded. He wants to get to his wounded father, Sean Connery. And um, one of the challenges is the challenge of the penitent man test. Indy is lowly tiptoeing through the walkway, the cave, and he's repeating to himself what he has seen, the secret code that he saw in his little book. It said, only the penitent man will pass. Only the penitent man will pass. He didn't, wasn't sure what that meant, but he knew he needed admit he needed to do something. Then it hits him. The penitent man is the humble one who kneels before God, and so he quickly kneels, and within a split second, three blades come, <laughs> and they're zipping through the air, and they were designed to cut him into pieces, and as he had been through the cave previously, he had seen dead bodies and skulls that had not made it through. But he made it through. He survived. In fact, he, he, he's not cut up because he ducks and he dips and, and he survived. And he yells back to those, I made it through. The penitent man, the penitent woman, the penitent person is the one who has learned regularly to kneel in humility. To repent literally means to to change one's heart and mind towards something. To repent before God is to, to surrender and kneel before him. Now, why does Job repent? Why does Job repent here as this book comes to a close in this last chapter? He doesn't repent of some great sin that he'd been hiding. That's what his friends wanted him to do all through the dialogue. You've committed a great sin. Come on, Job, repent, and then things will turn around. He does not repent for even arguing with the three friends and not, and not agreeing with them. He doesn't have to repent for that. He doesn't repent for being mad at God, even, expressing frustration with God. That's not why he repents. He repents because he has a fresher, clearer view of God, and he realizes that to believe in God is to live with some measure of mystery, not demanding that God tell him everything. You know, we can never totally figure him out. So we should never put him in a box and demand that he explain himself to us. He's bigger. He's wiser. He's more complex than we are. And some things are revealed to us and some things will be revealed to us. We walk by faith, not by sight. Job has learned that only the penitent man will pass and his friends Need to learn that lesson as well. That takes us to the last part of the chapter. And I don't want to look at the rest of the chapter. Let me read verses 7 to 17, the rest of the chapter, which we didn't read yet. So, after, Moses, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will, shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's, Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And Then, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all that had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed, up, showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He, also, he had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, the name of the second Kezia, the name of the third Karen Hapok. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, Four generations, and Job died, an old man, and full of years. And that's that's how the book ends. This this section is a lot here, and I'm just going to touch on on what I, what I call five five gospel nuggets in this section. Five there are five things in this section that, that just jump out at me that I want to zero in as we as we wind down this book. The first is, is here we see the reality of God's wrath. Look at, look, at, look at verse verse seven. We see. God's burning anger, it's a righteous anger, but it's an anger. And it's towards Job's three friends, and it's not towards Job or even towards Elihu. God's grace only makes sense if God's wrath is real. I'm going to say that again, because I don't think many people like to think about God as having burning anger. God's grace only makes sense if God's wrath is real. We have to deal with that. The second nugget I see here is is we see the gracious mediator of God. Verses 8 and 9. See, these men accused Job of committing a great sin, but he had not. They were wrong. So notice what happens. The three have to humble themselves and go to Job. And Job has to humble himself to forgive them, to offer sacrifice for them to pray for them. Job is, is, is a mediator figure. He's a priest figure. He's a figure of Christ. Now we know ultimately the New Testament tells us that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. But Job stands in this passage as one who, who offers forgiveness to them and who has to say himself, Father forgive them, they don't know what they do the gracious mediator of God. We see also foreshadowed uh, the fellowship of believers, the gracious fellowship of God's people. We see Job's friends and his family, and they're restored to Job, aren't they? This is in contrast to his three friends, the miserable comforters. these, These friends and family are providing the edifying fellowship rather than dragging Job down spiritually. Job no longer feels alone. This foreshadows the church of Jesus Christ. We are not alone in this walk of faith. The the fourth foreshadow I see is the abundance of God's grace in his passage. We see this restoration, and and, and we wish that that they're prescribing what God does for all of us. But no, this is describing what God did for Job. It's not a prescription, it's a description. this is not a prosperity gospel ending to the story. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 16 is a chapter about faith, and there we're told that those who walked by faith were strangers and exiles waiting for a better country, a heavenly one. So we should not think that all these things be restored to Job's mean, Job means that God restores everything to everyone who walks by faith. No, but there are signs of God's abundant grace. You see, for God's elect, the end of the story is always, the end is always manifold, amazing, abundant grace. You see, in the life of Job, everything is doubly restored. Did you notice that? If you compare the first chapter and this last chapter, there's a double restoration of things. And by the way, you may have noticed that the children were not doubly restored. Why? Very important true fear the family in chapter 1 died. But they were merely what the New Testament calls asleep in the Lord. Those who die in the Lord are only asleep. There's a coming reunion when loved ones who are in Christ leave us. We need to know that they are with the Lord and therefore more alive than ever before. That's the blessed hope of every believer. So, the number of children, is doubled. Job becomes a parable for us in a lot of ways. This story began with a blameless man. He experienced suffering. It points us to the fall. The long section of the middle points to the reality that in this life there's tribulation and pain and suffering and misery. But the story doesn't end in this life. Because of Jesus, we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of men what God has prepared for those who love him. That's our hope. That's the good news. Soon, and very soon, we're going to see the king. That's the hope of the believer. And the last nugget I see is the fifth nugget. We see the inclusion of outsiders by God's grace. See, women are dignified in this section by by, by having their names listed. And in verse Peter 3 says they are joint heirs of the grace of life. And this points to the fact that those who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who is our peace. We see that there, the inclusion. So brothers and sisters, what's the message of the book of Job? That the proud have it all figured out, but the humble are those who know that God has it all figured out. That's the message. So we bow in repentance before him regularly. As children of God, we must walk in brokenness. The wise understand that suffering is the very normal part of this fallen world. As children of God, we walk by faith. The wise understand that we will not and cannot understand all things. As children of God, we walk in humility. The wise understand that we can understand enough to repent before God and before one another. The arrogant, religious never experience the grace of forgiveness because they lack the one thing that God requires of sinners, to repent, to turn, to change of mind. As children of God, we must walk finally in hope. The wise understand that Jesus is the ultimate sufferer the only righteous sufferer who never had to repent. His sufferings point us to endure until that day when he makes all things new, and we will understand it better by and by. Last Sunday we went to Philadelphia uh, for Father's Day. Grace, my daughter, invited us up. We went up. Um, On the way home, we were at a rest stop at I-95. In fact, we saw Rachel and, and, and Jackie, there. Yeah, we, we saw you, and uh, we said hi. But one of my granddaughters, uh, Aaliyah. There's, I think, a picture of me and Aaliyah there. Excuse me, Ariel. There's Ariel. Ariel. Um, Ariel. We love Ariel. She's she's so delightful. Ariel has a problem. She wanders. You, you know what I'm talking about. She she loves to wander. She loves to experience life. And so. You're, you know, you can't do that. And so we're, we're in the process of trying to train her to, 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 to not wander like that. So we were at the rest stop, and, and I'm trying to keep Ariel and Aaliyah, her, her older sister, close to me, and she wants to wander around and stuff. So I, I, I had to be stern. I said, look, Ariel, come here. She just ignored me <laughs> several times. Come here. You've all been there. <laughs> and then at one point, she took one step towards me, and her sister Aaliyah was watching. So I said, I got up and I grabbed her and I brought her to me and I put her in my lap and sternly said, I said, Ariel, when mommy or daddy or pop-pop or grandma or your uncle or your aunt tell you to do something, you have to do it. You have to obey. You don't have to understand. It's not a game. We don't want you to play the game chase. No. You do what we say because we love you. We want to protect you. We care for you. We're not trying to be mean. She cried, of course. (laughs) She, She complied for about 10, 15 minutes, I guess. But children of God, God isn't mean. God loves us. And there's sometimes some things in our life that God says we don't understand them. But like Ariel, we need to comply and submit. Not because God hates us. Because the one who's calling us to do what he wants us to do loves us with an everlasting love. Job learned that lesson. We're all trying to learn that lesson. But that's the good news according to Job. Do you have a relationship with God Is he your father? Do you love him? Do you know he loves you? I urge you to make peace with him if you have not ever done that. Trust Jesus Christ. And if you have made that commitment to trust him, if you profess to know him, here's the question. Have you had some Job 42 experiences where God came to you and you had to repent and say, God, I know you're right. I need to learn again to trust you and give myself to you and stop fighting you. Because I know, I know deep down in my heart that you do love me. God wants to be your God. He wants to protect you, love you, forgive you. He wants to be your God. Let's pray.